much of the summer talking about what it means to cultivate the character of Jesus, what it means to live a life according to the Spirit, as the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. We talked about what it means to live a life dependent upon the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, what it means to live a life abiding in Jesus, fixing our gaze upon him, walking intimately with him, what it means to live a life of helping the sinful nature toward its final breath, what it means to live a life embracing the ordinary means of God's grace in our lives, what it, what it simply means to live a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There'll be a quiz on that next week. You'll have to come in and say them all in order. So I hope you've been listening. I trust that, that God has both convicted you in this series. I trust that he's encouraged you if you've been around for any part of this series. But here's the thing. It's possible to grow uh, in respect to all the virtues that Paul trumpets that make up the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 and yet, yet fail to put them into practice in the proper arenas. And so this morning, that's what we're after. You can call it the bonus track on the album, if you will. I don't know if you're like me. You used to buy your CDs at FYE in the, in the mall, and you'd get super excited when all of a sudden you get to the last one. There's that bonus track afterwards that's not on the back of the CD. All of a sudden, you get super giddy. That's what this is. So you can get really giddy in your seat right now. This is the bonus track. This is a call to self-assessment this morning. This is a call to action. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Galatians chapter 5. It's where we began this series. That's where we'll end it. We'll predominantly be looking at verses 25 and 26, though we will um, take a look at a few verses prior to and coming out of these two verses. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the uh, chairs in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible as the church's gift to you for free. It's yours. We're happy for you to own a Bible and explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. Let me pray for us, and we'll get rolling. God, as James mentioned earlier, as we opened up our time together, uh, we give thanks to you uh, for the family that you have invited us into. Jesus, you did spill your blood for individuals, but yet at the same time, you spilled your blood for a people, a plurality. Uh, the local church the various expressions of the bride of Christ are a gift to us. I pray that we would see that this morning. I pray that the scriptures would make clear to us that to live uh, in isolation rather than community is to be in opposition to your very word. And I pray that you would draw us into community, that you would draw us away from the peripheral edges of knowing others and being known by others, and that we would experience the fullness of the gospel in our lives as a result. We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, let me start by saying this. Most people know that the Apostle Paul is a theologian. Most people don't have a problem with that. You read any of his New Testament books of the Bible, your head hurts a little bit, you get it, right? Paul is into theology. But he's not just a theologian. Paul's also a pastor. A theologian wants you to know the truth. A pastor wants you to not only know it, but to experience the truth. And so throughout the book of Galatians, where, where we started this series, Paul lays out some really incredible theology. If you go back to Galatians 1 and read this entire book in its fullness, you see Paul unpack the theology of the gospel versus false gospels. 
You see Paul unpacked the theology of justification by faith alone, a critical doctrine of the church. You see Paul unpack uh, the, the theology of law and gospel. You see Paul unpack the theology of adoption, our becoming children of God. You see Paul unpack the theology of redemption, our being freed from the shackles of enslavement to sin. You see Paul unpack the theology of the life lived according to the spirit, which is what we've been after all summer long. But Paul's not content with the saints just becoming more theologically astute. That's not what he's after. Yes, he's a theologian, but he's also a pastor. He has a deep love for the saints. And so he wants us to actually experience the gospel in the midst of false gospels. He wants us to actually experience the joy that comes in breathing the air of justification by faith alone rather than justification by works. He wants us to actually experience the joy of the gospel rather than the hopelessness of the law. He wants us to actually experience the wonder of what it means to be a child of God, this doctrine of adoption. He wants us to actually experience the freedom of no longer being enslaved to sin's domineering power. And he wants us to actually experience the spirit-filled, spirit-led life. That's what Paul wants for us. And here's the deal. Paul knows that you can't fully experience any of that on your own, which is why he and other New Testament authors use this one another language over and over and over and over again. Let me just beat a dead horse. If you've seen this before, you're going to see it again. Hopefully it just works its way deeper into your, uh, your system, into the recesses of your being. And if you've never seen this before, hopefully it's just an eye opener for you. Let me take you through... Uh, an exercise in the one another teachings of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, 5, that we are members one of another. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Again, in Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. Romans 13, 8, love one another. Romans 14, 19, edifying one another. Romans 15, 7, welcome one another. Romans 15, 14, instruct one another. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. A favorite verse of kids in student ministry because they think they can just warp it and use it for their own good. 1 Corinthians 1, 10, agree with one another. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty three. wait for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, have the same care for one another. Galatians 5.13, serve one another in love. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to and forgiving of one another. Ephesians 5.19, address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. Philippians 2.3, esteem one another. Colossians 3.13, bear with and forgive one another. Colossians 3.16, teach and admonish one another. Hebrews 3.13, exhort one another every day. Hebrews 10.24, stir up one another to love and good works. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. James 5.16 also says pray for one another. 1 Peter 1.22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another. 1 John 1, 7, fellowship with one another. 
unless we think that we've come to the conclusion, there are even the negative one another statements in Scripture. Romans 127, not lusting for one another. Romans 14, 13, not passing judgment on one another. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, not depriving one another. Galatians 5, 15, not biting, devouring, or destroying one another. Galatians 5, 26, not envying one another. Galatians 5, 26, also saying, not provoking one another. Colossians 3, 9, not lying to one another. James 4, 11, not speaking evil against one another. James 5, 9, not grumbling against one another. And lastly, Titus 3, 3, not hating one another. Here's the thing that must not be forgotten. These are commands. These are imperatives in the scriptures, 37 of them to be exact. And this is just a working list in progress. The homework is not complete yet. When we live our lives in a way that declares that community, that moving toward knowing and being known by others in the church is a negotiable, when we live our lives justifying all the reasons that community won't work for us, whether we realize it or not, we're declaring a hearty no thank you to at least 37 New Testament imperatives, commands of God. We cannot live in obedience to God in isolation. Unless you're exiled to the island of Patmos, like the Apostle John, or you're the last contestant on Survivor, it cannot be done. Biblically, we're commanded to live the one another life. Now, we could very easily go to any of these 37 passages and, and get a glimpse of um, God's vision for a life lived in community, you might say. But what I think would be most helpful to kind of keep it in-house, to kind of uh, put a bow on it, so to speak, with respect to this summer series, would be to pick up where we left off when we began this series, which is in Galatians 5. I said it before and I'll say it again. It's possible to grow in every one of these virtues that we've talked about over the course of the summer that make up the fruit of the Spirit, to grow in your understanding of these virtues and yet to fail to put them into practice in the proper arenas. In other words, it's possible to grow in an understanding of the virtue of love and to even grow in our love for God as a result. That's possible. And yet to fail to implement the virtue of love in the midst of the family of God. Because we're standing at the peripheral edges of community, looking in on it. Again, going back to Romans 13, 8, love one another. 1 Peter 1, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That you're missing an intricate piece of the spirit-led life if you're not pressing into and embracing the value of community. You're missing something of the fruit of the spirit if you're standing at the peripheral edges with one you know, toe dipped in the water but not really diving into it. And so picking up where we left off this summer, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit, Paul says. That's what we've been after all summer, Right? This idea of being a people who walk by the Spirit, a people who embrace those virtues of love and joy and peace and patience and so forth and so on. Paul says, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us be led by the Spirit. And without so much as a pause, we're in the same paragraph. Paul says, verse 26, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That to walk by the Spirit requires an embracing of the one another life, according to the Apostle Paul. That 
If there's no one another element to the Christian life, there's no need for verse 26. Just stop at verse 25. Verse 26 assumes that we're not standing at the peripheral edges of community looking in on it. Verse 26 assumes that we haven't bought into the it's just me and Jesus isolationist view of Christianity. If Jesus had that in mind for us, there would be no verse 26. But as it stands, here we encounter not just a single one another command, but two of them back to back. Here's a sobering truth. If you want to walk by the Spirit, if, if that's your desire, if you want to be led by the Spirit, the Spirit is always going to lead you toward the body. The Spirit of Christ will always lead you toward the body of Christ. So that if you find yourself pulling away from the body, you can be sure that you're not walking by the Spirit. You might say, well, well, that's really hard. You know, if I stand at the peripheral edges of community, then I don't have to deal with provoking other people. I don't have to deal with envying other people. I don't have to deal with conceit, which comes out in me when I'm around other people. Those are sinful tendencies that have to do with being in close proximity to other human beings. And so I'm actually a less sinful version of myself when I retreat from community because I don't struggle with those sins as much. To which I would say, Maybe not, you'll just be breaking 37 commands of God in the process. And the sin will likely still be there. It'll just lie dormant, which means that the Spirit isn't actively chiseling away any of it in conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8. The family of God is a gift. Is she perfect? No way. She's a train wreck. She's a gloriously redeemed train wreck. You can be sure of that. I can say that because I'm a gloriously redeemed train wreck and I am the church. But she is God's grace to us nonetheless. Because God has given us this gift, we don't have to, going back to last week as we looked at Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, we don't have to white knuckle it on our own. We don't have to go at it in isolation. We can surround ourselves with people who love Jesus, who love his gospel, who love us, and who will fight for us to believe the gospel. To run from community because we feel like we can be a less sinful version of ourselves apart from others, that's about as absurd as running from marriage because it just might be a more difficult means of our own sanctification. That God has purposed to redeem us into a family, a family God graciously uses to conform us into the image of his son. I love this quote. It's in our partnership material. You've heard it before if you've been around for any amount of time. You'll hear it again, I'm sure. It's John Stott. He says this. He says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. That's a big statement. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For his purpose, which was conceived in a past eternity, which is being worked out in history, and which is to be perfected in a future eternity, his purpose is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness. Isn't that good news? But rather to build his church, that is to call out of the world a people, plural, a people for his own glory. Did Jesus redeem individuals? Yes and amen. Jesus redeemed me. There are many in this room who would make that same sweeping declaration, but not just a person. Jesus spilled his blood for a plurality, 
He redeemed a people, which is why Peter could say this, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you, church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see the plural language there? A race, a priesthood, a nation, a people. Let me just drive home the point a little bit more by hitting the rewind and the fast forward buttons coming out of verses 25 and 26 of Galatians 5. If you hit rewind and go back to Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 and 14, context is everything. Remember, the Galatians were people who had struggled with works righteousness. They were trying to earn their way to God. They saw salvation not as in Christ alone, but rather Jesus plus whatever I can bring to the table. For five chapters, Paul's been making the case that to add Anything to the gospel is to ruin the gospel. In the words of one author, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If you're a Christian in this room, you know that to be true. You became a Christian when you realized that the only thing that you had to bring to the table was your sin and the empty hands of faith. But leading up to that moment, uh, you just didn't sleep well at night, constantly wondering, am I good enough? Am I good enough now, God? Have I gotten there now? Will you pick me for your eternal kickball team, please? Will you look down upon me favorably? And then there came that day where you realized that white knuckling just isn't going to get you there. And those of us who are Christians in the, in the room turned to Jesus and said, you alone, Jesus, your life lived in my place, your perfect life, your substitutionary death, your powerful resurrection is where my hope lies. Galatians 5.13 says this, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says, you guys are so enamored with the law. Here's how the law actually works. It condemns you and forces you to look to Jesus for salvation. You can't fulfill the law perfectly in your own strength. But there's one who has, and his name is Jesus. He lived the life you could never live. He died the death that you deserve to die. Your sins were put upon him, and he was punished in your place. And as you trust not in yourself but in him for salvation, the Holy Spirit takes up residency within you and empowers you to love others. There's a loving others component to the Christian life, Paul says. You can't love others if you're living a life of isolation. You can't love others if you live life standing at the peripheral edges of community, looking in on it, but never truly experiencing it. And for those who might be inclined to respond, love my neighbor, huh? Well, that doesn't necessarily mean a church body. Paul says, not so fast. Here's where we hit the fast forward button. Go to Galatians 6, verse 1. Notice the first word out of Paul's mouth. Brothers. This is a term that communicates the idea of family, that we've been adopted into God's family. We're his children. He's our Abba Father. Jesus is our big brother, according to the author of Hebrews. And now we get to live out this thing called the Christian life among siblings. 
I'm not going to unpack all that Galatians 6 says this morning. I, I just want to direct your attention to a few things pertaining to this value of community. I want you to see what's at stake here. Number one, apart from community, according to verse 1, we will miss out on moments of spiritual restoration. Look at Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The, the, the word restore here um, carries with it this idea of mending a broken bone, a, a fitting back together of something that's fractured. That apart from community, in our moments of brokenness, in our moments of sin, we will miss out on opportunities to experience spiritual healing. That when you, when you break a bone, here's what you don't do unless you're Chuck Norris. You don't set the bone yourself, right? You, you go to a hospital, you let someone else engage in that and help to restore what's broken. It's how we approach it. We need others around us to help us to see the fracture for what it is oftentimes because we can't even see it uh, as it pertains to spiritual fractures, sin in our lives. And we need people to help bring the healing power of the gospel in those moments into our lives. We need others around us. On the flip side... Apart from community, I don't think we think this way oftentimes. We, uh, we, we look introspectively at our own needs so much that we miss it. Apart from community, we also rob others of moments of spiritual healing. We find ourselves absent in those moments that God might actually use us to help restore a brother or a sister in their moment of brokenness, in their moment of sin. This is what I mean when I say it makes me really sad whenever people are absent from my community group. Not because I'm sitting around with a tally board trying to, you know, keep attendance charts, you know, because I'm one of those pastors that finds their identity and how many people we have in groups. That's not it. It's because when people are absent from my living room on Wednesday evenings, there's something that I miss. There's something that I'm robbed of in the midst of that. It's my loss when they're not there, not just theirs. We have, we have a real opportunity, according to Galatians 6, verse 1, to bring healing to one another in very practical, gospel-centered ways. Notice how Paul even throws that word gentleness in there. He just kind of skips it like a rock across the water. One of those virtues that makes up the fruit of the Spirit, as if to say, yet again, if you run from community, you're running from the Spirit-led life. Another thing that we miss out on apart from community are moments of burden-bearing, according to verse 6. Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This language of bearing one another's burdens implies two things. Number one, we all have them, which is why you have this reciprocal language, bearing one another's burdens. It's not that some of us have burdens, others of us don't. Secondly, we're not meant to carry our burdens alone, according to this verse. In the same way the Apostle Paul slips the virtue of gentleness into verse one, he slips the virtue of kindness into verse two. If you were around for the sermon on kindness in this series, you remember this language of bearing uh, the load on behalf of the other. When we fix our gaze on Jesus, we're reminded that he bore the ultimate burden for us, namely the burden of our sin, the burden of our grief, the burden of our sorrows. You remember these verses from a few weeks ago? Isaiah 53, he, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. There's that language 
of burden-bearing. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It goes on to say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, there's that language again of bearing. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Peter says it this way, 1 Peter 2.24. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Jesus bore the weight of our sin. Jesus bore the weight of our shame. And now we have the honor and the privilege of bearing the burdens of our siblings in Christ. For those who, who say, no thanks, I'm good. That sounds a bit taxing. One, you're missing out on the fact that there's actually a blessing for you in that, right? Any of you who have come up under the burden of another, you know that weird reward that God brings about in the midst of that, right? You're going, how does that even make sense? I feel like I've been depleted somehow, and yet I'm rejoicing in the midst of this that, God, you used me and brought me alongside of this person in this very unique and purposeful way. But not just that. There will come a day, whether you believe it or not, regardless of how self-sufficient you you think you are, when you have a burden that you can't bear on your own. And you're going to want the church to come alongside of you. You're going to want the family of God to come alongside of you in those moments. We deeply need each other. The church is a gift from God. And not just the church in some generic way, but we're talking a group of people to whom you're close enough that you know their burdens and they know your burdens. Hence the need for the church to get smaller. Shameless plug for community groups there. I'm going to come after it again in just a minute. Just warning you. Another thing we'll miss out on apart from community. We'll miss out on the humbling work of the gospel in our lives. Apart from community, we will deceive ourselves into thinking that we're something that we're not. Look at verse 3 of Galatians 6. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives Himself. Verse 3 is connected to all that one another language leading up to it. Hence the word for. That apart from knowing others and being known by others in a, in a real, vulnerable, transparent, honest way, we're in danger of becoming conceited. Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to. There's a reason that people love Bible studies over community groups. Are both helpful? Yes and amen. But With a Bible study, it's much easier to keep the conversation in the realm of intellectual assent. With a Bible study, it's much easier to keep the conversation focused on doctrine alone. People are really good at doing that, at using theology as a crutch oftentimes even. You ever been a part of a group like this, growing in an understanding of theological truths themselves, but never talking about how to apply those truths in areas of sin and unbelief, areas of doubt? and fear, things that you're actually going through in the moment. A community group, at least the way ours function, is a, it's a call. It's a call to vulnerability. It's a call to transparency in the best way possible. And it's a call that's first and foremost placed upon our leadership. We're gonna have a community group leader training this evening, and one of the things that our leaders are gonna hear is what they've heard before, which is this. The expectation is that you are the lead confessor and repenter of your group. 
But that's the trickle down that we want to create in this church. When you commit yourself to those kinds of relationships where you're, where you're actually known by others and where you actually know others, and not just the good, but the bad and the ugly, it keeps you humble. There are many in this church who know my sin. Isn't that crazy? In a world where oftentimes pastors go, let me tell you about that thing I struggled with 10 years ago that God redeemed me of. That's all you ever hear of their sin. There are people in this church who actually know my weaknesses. Everybody in this church who's been around for any significant amount of time knows my root idols. Approval, right? Some of you could take the quiz today and just declare it because you know it. There are many in this church who know what my blind spots look like that I have yet to see for myself. It makes it kind of hard to be braggadocious, which is a good thing because the last thing the Bible Belt needs is more professing Christians looking down their noses in self-righteousness at other people. Being honest with others about the ways in which we are all works in progress who need to constantly be pointed back to the cross of Jesus Christ is gloriously humbling. We could go on and on about the importance of community, about the value of community. We could skip down to verse 10, talk about the significance of doing good to others, especially those in the household of faith. Talk about the value of church family there. We could go outside the bounds of the book of Galatians and look at all 37 of those one another commands. I know you don't want to do that because I know you're hungry, so we're not going to. Every one of those one another statements is, is yet another piece of evidence declaring the importance of pressing in to the one another life. And so let me ask this. It's the only question I'll ask this morning. How can you take a next step toward community? What does that look like for you? Some might say, why is it not enough for me to be present on Sunday mornings? I mean, that's in some sense a living out of the one another life, isn't it? I mean, I'm not isolated in my living room this morning, Jamie. I'm not podcasting sermons. Why is that not enough? Well, let me come back to Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, and let me attempt to make a case for why that's not enough. Thinking about this morning's passage, verse 1 of Galatians 6, spiritual restoration. In a room of, I don't know, roughly 100 people this morning, it's hard for us to spiritually restore one another in moments of sin. I don't know about you, but I can only help to spiritually restore a handful of people at any given time. My capacity only goes so far for stepping in to those restorative moments before I start to lose the gentle factor. Not only that, it's only possible for me to know the, the sinful tendencies of a handful of people at any given time as well. I don't know the doubts of every person in this room, nor do you. I don't know the fears of every person in this room, nor do you. I don't know what the battle with unbelief looks like for every person in this room, nor do you. I don't know what the struggles with sin look like for every person in this room, nor do you. And in, in the same way, not every person in this room knows your doubts, your fears, your battle with unbelief, your struggles with sin. As the church gets smaller, it becomes more and more feasible to live out verse 1 of Galatians 6, to spiritually restore one another in moments of sin and to be spiritually restored by others in moments of sin. 
Verse two, burden bearing. In a room of roughly 100 people, it's hard for us to bear the burdens of one another. Again, I, I can't get under the weight of that many people's burdens. It would crush me, partly because I don't have the capacity, and two, I just don't know the burdens that everyone in this room bears. I don't know the burdens of everyone in this room, nor do you. And in the same way, not everyone in this room knows your burdens. Again, as the church gets smaller, it becomes much more feasible to live out verse two of Galatians chapter six, to bear the burdens of others and to have them come alongside you to help you bear your burdens. And then lastly, verse three, self-deception. Really easy to remain in the realm of self-righteousness in a room of 100 people. It's easy to look around, to remain anonymous, to remain unknown, to look for people who are a little more rough around the edges than you are and to justify yourself in those moments. As the church gets smaller, it becomes increasingly more difficult to remain unknown. It, it becomes increasingly more difficult to sweep our sins under the rug, especially with the way we go after getting smaller. I personally write the questions for our community groups every week, and there's an intentionality behind that. They're, they're meant to move us toward honest, transparent dialogue where we take the truth, where we take the doctrine, where we take the theology because we're not opposed to theology. We're not opposed to doctrine. We just want to use it and wield it like a weapon against sin and unbelief. The questions that I sit with every Sunday and, and write are meant to help us apply the gospel, which means better understanding our own sin and doubt which in turn has a crippling effect on self-righteousness. As we see our deep need for Jesus, we're less inclined to look down our noses and more inclined to look upward to Jesus. Those are just three verses that drive at the need to get smaller. That's why we don't just gather as the church on Sunday mornings. That's why we philosophically include community groups as a part of our ministry model. Not because churches need to do two things rather than one or everybody's just going to disappear off the scene, but because we really do believe that we can't accomplish the fullness of what we're called to live out if we only do this. So coming back to the question, what does that next step look like for you? How can you take a next step toward community? Every one of us in this room can take a next step in obedience to Jesus. Perhaps for some, it's simply expressing interest in learning more about how we seek to go after this value. It's finding a leader in the church and asking, can you tell me more about these things you call community groups, what they're about, what you're after, what you're trying to accomplish there? Perhaps for others, you know everything you need to take that step, and now it's just a matter of jumping out of the plane. Maybe, maybe God's calling you to, to even take a step without having it all figured out. Maybe the most spirit-led way you could respond this morning is by filling out one of those little red cards to say, this is a big deal for me. I still have about 16 questions about community groups that I have yet to get answered, but I'm still gonna take the leap and see what happens for the glory of God. For those already in a group, perhaps the next step in response this morning would simply be to be more consistent, to be more present, to make this value of community more of a continual rhythm in your life for all the reasons that we've talked about this morning, to fight against that thing that, that goes on in your mind, whatever it is, the night your group meets that goes, well, let's just stay home tonight. Or, or when, when someone in your group 
engages you and says, hey, man, let's get together. And I understand you can't get together every night of the week, but, but if you have this kind of propensity to always push back, to always find a reason not to, perhaps that's what God might be calling you to as a next step. For those who are consistent, for those who are present, perhaps the next step is to be more transparent to share more with others in your group about what's really going on in your life, to, to stop buying into that lie that says, I can only share thoughts that are doctrinal in nature, not personal stuff, to declare, you know what? I'm no longer gonna be a spiritual onion with all these layers hiding the real me. I'm gonna be more transparent this fall with people in my group and just see what God might do because I know that God will use it for his glory, for my good and for the good of others in my group. All of us can take a, a next step toward the one another life. What will yours be? Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.